You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I used to tell my brother that when God was giving out brains, he thought they said trains and asked for an empty compartment. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Burns. Dr. Burns is Director of Neuropsychology for Children's Healthcare of Atlanta at Scottish Rite Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. He is certified by the American Boards of Professional Psychology, Clinical Neuropsychology, and Professional Neuropsychology. Today we are discussing brain mapping as part of the evaluation for the neurosurgical treatment of epilepsy and outcomes following surgery. Hi, Dr. Burns. Hi, Bill. How are you doing? Great. And thank you for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Sure. The patient has passed muster, and of course, I think my brother probably would have, you know, taken care of me. He's bigger than I am after that <laughs> comment, but I guess if they had brain mapping, uh, <laughs> he would have proved me wrong. <laughs> That's right. But the patient has passed the muster and is in the final stages of evaluation prior to undergoing a neurosurgical procedure for the treatment of intractable epilepsy. Yes. What has to be done next so we kind of don't blow it in the ninth? Well, we, we traditionally do a procedure that we call cortical mapping. And what that involves is being able to map out on the levels of the cortex, what functions are involved in what places. And given the fact that in pediatric epilepsy, we have a procedure where it's two stages, so that the grids are placed on the first neurosurgical encounter, and then the patient goes to a hospital room where they're monitored to identify exactly where the seizure is coming from. How long would they stay there? They'll stay usually seven days to the time that they have their, their second surgery. So during those seven days, the first few days, we'll monitor and identify exactly where the seizures are in this grid. And the grid will enable you to figure out where the point is that the seizure is initiating at down to the centimeter. Now, some of these children are not having active seizures when they're admitted. Do you induce one if there's no seizure present, or how do you get the information you need? For the first few days after the grids are placed, the medications are usually weaned to a lower level so that it encourages us to get that data on the seizures. Once they have a few seizures and we know where the area is that we're looking at, uh, they then typically go back on their medicines, and that's when we, uh, usually a few days, three or four days after the surgery, we'll then initiate the cortical mapping procedure. Do you do any video EEGs or other testing during this time? During this whole procedure, they are admitted back to our video EEG unit. So they are being video monitored as well as monitored with the EEG. And then again, do you do any functional testing with the cortical electrodes in place to really specify perhaps where language or motor function is Yes, located? that's exactly the, the goal is to, once we, we have the child there and we can, we can reverse the polarity on the computer, we can actually stimulate the different areas around the place where the seizures are starting. And what we are looking for is, is structural maps that can help the neurosurgeon later to identify where the primary motor strip is, where the uh, zones of uh, language are, are housed, whether it be receptive language or expressive language. So there's a number of tests that we give that will relate to the understanding that the child has of things that they may read or naming ability. And then even as easy as observing the patient while we stimulate areas in the motor cortex and seeing what areas of, the, of their body move. You said a one-centimeter area can be identified. What is the typical area that is involved in seizure activity? The most common is in the temporal lobe. But, I mean, how big an area? I'm sorry. It can vary. You can have a very small area that's uh, related to where the seizures originate, 
as uh, you have older patients that may be seizing for a longer history, you may have mesial temporal sclerosis that may, in fact, be a huge area involving the hippocampus and associated memory problems. And this same procedure we use for patients that come in that present with a seizure that have brain tumors as well. So there are cases where you have tumors that are five, six centimeters large that are impinging where we want to make sure that the margin that the neurosurgeon cuts is not going to impinge on functional tissue. Can you give us a picture of what the map actually looks like? Is it just multiple leads with EEG patterns, or is this color-coded? What does the surgeon actually get before they go into the operating room? The neurosurgeon will get a color-coded map that is, uh, we have an MRI that takes a picture when the grids are on so that we know exactly where structurally that grid lies. And then we take that grid and color code all the electrodes, whether they're related to sensory ability or motor skills or language. And we also meet with the neurosurgeon and, and propose and talk about where would be the best area to there's often issues that come up in terms of uh, how to get to that area that they're going to resect, as well as uh, what the chances are that we're going to have issues related to, for example, language function if you're getting close to that area. That's really terrific, the way you can localize things. Once you get this data, you're asking parents to subject their child, I would think, to a fairly risky procedure, although I understand the risks are not as great to the patient as one might assume. But how do you prepare the family for a child to undergo such a surgery? At Children's, I think the team approach probably would best answer your question because we have a whole team of social workers and child life counselors and people that will prep not only the patient but probably more importantly the family on what the procedures are going to be like and what to expect. Uh, We give them a a fair amount of material to read, uh, references on even to our Internet all the way down to book chapters and things we can give them to better understand so that they're educated on what's going to happen. And it's it's interesting because the, the families are usually more, you know, are, are probably have a more difficult time with this, and usually the parents, than you would expect from just the patient alone. During the second half of our talk, I'd like to move on to the rehabilitation and recovery following neurosurgery. Can you tell us a little bit about what you expect to find when the child comes out of the operating room, and how does your team proceed? Well, the child that undergoes surgery, the success that they have after is often predicated on what we do prior to the surgery. So there's a fair amount of preparation that we talk to the family about what to expect when they come out of surgery, oftentimes just due to the swelling and the nature of the neurosurgical resection. There's a few days after the surgery that it's just a matter of recovery and and them getting back on their feet. Usually a, a child undergoes the surgery in their home two days later. So when they return back for one of their follow-up visits, we'll usually check in with them to see if there's any cognitive issues or problems that may be present. And it's fairly individualized depending on where the resection takes place so that we can prepare them for whether it's a motor issue that we might be looking for or if there's any problems with language or word finding. But many times we will have services in place before they even undergo the surgical resection. One area that we follow up fairly routinely is uh, what we call cognitive remediation which is taking the neuropsychological test scores and then developing a plan that will help them at school so that they can compensate, for example, for a memory issue or for problems with expressing what they know. Or Even in the earlier stages when they're recovering from the surgery, they're transient. Many of the symptoms will disappear in a couple months or even weeks. The primary emphasis is on making sure that both the school, the parents, and the child are aware of what those issues will be before they even wake up from the surgery. In terms of 
residual symptoms. Do you usually take a watchful waiting approach, or does the child receive, say, speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, prior to the natural history sort of taking place in the some of these deficits resolving? It can involve both. We've had multiple, uh, it can be occupational, physical, or speech. It can also be uh, counseling. There have been patients that have often got on anti-anxiety medic- medications or even antidepressant medicines prior, if those are issues that we're concerned with. We've even had children that we have uh, prepared for surgery and had them trained on sign language to facilitate any language issues that we thought may be present immediately after the surgery so that they could at least communicate the basic needs that they have. What are some of the long-term outcomes? Can you be specific in perhaps even real-life stories that you've taken care of the patient? The most interesting outcomes that I've seen have been when the child has been able to come off the medication that they've been prescribed for usually many, many years prior to the surgery. And often that takes place at about the same time that we do a follow-up evaluation with the child, and that's 12 months after the surgery. And typically at that time, the neurologist, if they have not seen since the surgery, they begin looking at a weaning process to take them off medicines. And I often find that the cognitive capabilities of the patient that undergoes surgery, you see the greatest gains and the greatest jump when those anti-epileptic drugs are taken off or discontinued. Because everybody in medicine loves numbers. Can you give us a number, say, of IQ score that goes up or, you know, something measurable where you can say, here's what we've seen. We've operated on 40 children this year and a year later, two years later, here are the hard numbers of what we've seen. Yes. And, and the nice thing right now is that we're able to predict much better based on outcome just from the number of patients. That you, as you probably know, this surgery as an option has probably increased a fair amount in the last 10 to 15 years. So with the numbers of patients we have coming through, um, you can not only predict in many cases where the deficits or where the issues may be, but many times you can even start, even before the surgery in some cases, making modifications. So you can prepare the school, you can come up with alternative methods of teaching and ways that the children can still learn and to to bypass some of the deficits that we saw many years ago. We have a few minutes left, and I'd like to ask you if you talk about some of the emerging interventions. I've understood that the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Guidelines in the Treatment of Seizure Disorders mentions electroencephalogram biofeedback, vagal nerve stimulation, which you mentioned, and something called repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. Can you tell us a little bit about any of those procedures if they are in the realm of a neuropsychologist? Sure. The biofeedback has been around for many, many years, and it's treated for many different disorders. With, in many cases, it's been uh, with positive results. That, has been, uh, that is certainly available uh, to children, particularly when anxiety is an issue because it's been very helpful in using physical means to lower their level of arousal. Um, the VNS is used primarily as a therapeutic option to reduce the number of seizures, and that can be in patients before they undergo surgery, and in some cases it can be used after as well as an adjunct treatment if the seizures are not completely controlled. And like I said earlier, that's usually the case where it may reduce the seizures by 50%, and that may enable a patient to come off other medications, especially if they're receiving more than one anti-epileptic medicine. Uh, The last one, the transcranial stimulation, is much more of an experimental treatment right now uh, for many different disorders, but we're going to have to wait and see how that pans out. The other model to look at is is one of cognitive rehabilitation, 
um, which the neuropsychologist went through a phase where we used many computerized paradigms to have a patient go through different tasks and then to, to see how they performed on them and how they improved. And while we were able to initially get improvement on the computer, we didn't find that it generalized into the real-life situations. So I think we've taken a step back now and are using a more pragmatic approach of helping people to work on their basic memory function and their problem-solving uh, through more traditional kind of therapeutic modalities. Well, time has just gone by quickly. I want to thank Dr. Thomas Burns, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing brain mapping and outcomes following the neurosurgical treatment of seizure disorders. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable at ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I wish you good day and good health.